in that moment, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do more than just be an athlete. Welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast where I interview athletes and coaches and meditation teachers and practitioners and psychologists and anyone else who might have interesting things to say about the overlaps between sports and mental life and living well in general. This is Billy Hansen. Before we get to the episode today, I want to encourage anyone who hasn't read it yet to check out my newest blog post called It's Time to Protest Social Media. The post seems to be resonating with my readers and spreading more so than any other post has before. I like the way it turned out and I would love to get more eyeballs on it because I think it is a topic that is not being appreciated or paid attention to enough given everything that's going on. The blog post was inspired by my own reaction to the pandemic mixed with the social unrest that's stemming from the murder or likely murder of George Floyd. And when all this was happening, I was also reading, by happenstance, I was reading Jaron Lanier's book, 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And it all kind of came together in such a way that convinced me, as I mentioned in the last podcast, that it's time to get off of social media because I think that it's really diminishing from our ability to relate to one another and to come up with reasonable, nuanced solutions to difficult problems. And... He makes compelling arguments that social media is driving us all kind of crazy and making us more tribal and promoting assholes and provocateurs by its nature. So if you haven't read that, you might consider checking it out. You can find it on my website, billyhanson.net forward slash blog. It should be the first post there. And now on to today's episode. Today I am interviewing Ian Kendall. Ian was a good friend of mine in high school. He was a senior when I was a sophomore and we played basketball and baseball together. And Ian was one of, if not the best, baseball players in all of Oregon. And he was, as a senior, he was named co-pitcher of the year and was one of the best hitters in the States too. Had incredible power to all fields. He threw, you know, he could touch 95. He was just an incredible baseball player. And also just a great person who was fun to be around too. So Ian was recruited to Oregon State and was offered a scholarship to both pitch and hit at Oregon State, and he had accepted that scholarship before his senior season. But as a senior, as his velocity climbed, he started to garner the attention of professional scouts, and he was drafted in the fifth round by the Rays and decided to forego college and go pro. In Ian's time as a professional, he worked his way through the minor leagues, Ian's best season was his third season in A-ball, where he posted a career-best 2.48 ERA and was named to the Midwest League All-Star Game before an injury cut his season short. And as he describes here on the podcast, that same injury ultimately cut his career short, too. And so after Ian finished his baseball career, he is now in Los Angeles fulfilling an academic scholarship that the Rays promised him when they drafted him. It was part of the contract. And he is now moving into acting and modeling in L.A. On the podcast here, we discussed Ian's baseball journey. We talk about what it was like to get drafted out of high school, choosing to bypass college to go pro, life in the minor leagues, dealing with injuries and confidence issues, what it was like to get cut, developing a new identity after baseball. We talk about our relationships to drugs and alcohol as athletes, 
And I think this is a really especially great part of the conversation because Ian was so open and honest and vulnerable about his struggles with drugs and alcohol as an athlete and afterwards. And I also share some of my issues with these substances too. We also talk about Ian's journey into acting and modeling. We talk about his philosophy on diet and health and other topics. So it was really great getting Ian on the podcast. Ian was someone I really looked up to in high school, and he's really just a great guy, and it was fun to talk to him here on the podcast. If you like the podcast, you should consider subscribing to my newsletter if you haven't already, and that you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. And it's really, now that I'm off social media, it's the best way to stay in contact with my work as I send out new content announcements and other exclusive content. You can also help me out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, or probably the best way is just to share this podcast with people who you think might like it. And with that, without further delay, here is Ian Kendall. All right, I'm here with Ian Kendall. Ian, thank you for coming on the podcast. Billy, it's an honor, man. I'm, I'm stoked to be here. All right. So I want to start. I, I think you can help me with this. I don't know if I remember this correctly, but if I if I do, I remember, I think it was me, you, and Daniel Cooley were at lunch together my sophomore year and your senior year. And I think that was when you first got notified that you'd been drafted. Does that? Do you remember that? Yeah, man. We were, uh, yeah, it was right on Main Street. Uh, what was it? North Mountain Park Avenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were eating pizza, having lunch. And there was word that I was probably going to go at some point in that day. We didn't really know for sure. Um, And then I remember getting a phone call from my mom saying that I've been drafted. And I don't really remember what happened from there, dude, to be honest. It was kind of a blur because we were still like, it was lunchtime. (laughs) So it was like, you know, we still had to go back to class and all that, all the jazz. But, uh, yeah, man, that I totally forgot about that. That that was that that was with you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember you were surprised and like obviously elated, and we were stoked for you. That was such a cool moment. And obviously, yeah, you and I had been playing for the last two seasons together in basketball and baseball. It was, it was amazing to see that unfold. And so, yeah, so basically, you were you were already been offered a scholarship to play at Oregon State, and then you got drafted. Was there, and you ended up choosing to, to go straight to the pros. Was there, how did you end up making that decision? Was that a tough decision to forego Oregon State or did it end up being an easy decision because of the opportunity to go pro? How did that all come about? Yeah, man, I, it was definitely a tough decision for me. Um, I mean, at the time things transpired really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had such a good team that year and you know the development of our camaraderie and whatnot i think really helped propel me into that leadership role um and over you know in november like you had said oregon state had you know really been in contact with me for a couple years prior um and really when i first became passionate about going there was when they won the world series Mm. in 06 and 07 i think they won back to back and uh yeah, just having having that opportunity to go and have college paid for and to play under Coach Casey, who's now retired, um, was a dream come true for me from the time that I was in middle school. So, 
Mm-hmm. You know, as the senior going back to senior season, um, when teams started to really come out and watch the games and have that a little bit of that hype play into the factor of making the decision um, and then actually being drafted in in the uh, in the rounds that I in the round that I was, excuse me. It, it just came down to was I ready to go to school or did I want to just hit it hard with baseball every single day? And at that time, you're pretty ignorant still to really what jumping into the minor leagues means. Mm. And but it felt like the right decision, man. And so um, I decided to go forth with it and move to Florida in 2010 and pursue that dream of becoming a major league baseball player. Yeah, man. And you also in doing that, you had to give up being a position player, right? Because what, what was your were you going to Oregon State to pitch or hit or both? Yeah, man, they had told me that I was going to do both. Mm. Um, they said that they saw me at third base, and then I would be like a closer. Because mm. um, hitting was really my passion, dude, growing up throughout the, my entire life. Like, I, I always had a good arm, but it was more so hitting was way more fun to me. And then senior year transpired, and I started throwing pretty hard and um, making some things happen. And that's, that's when... Uh, Teams saw that as more of the future for me, but I was I was raw with pitching, dude. Really, really raw. Mm. Um, and yeah, but I was going to do both, which was pretty cool to be able to say that I would have been a dual player because not a lot of people do that. But yeah, um, I remember it was hilarious seeing like um, all the pitching scouts would come to our high school games, and there'd be like I don't remember how many people with radar guns behind uh, home plate, but they'd show up and they'd see you hit like. 15 home runs in batting practice before the game <laughs> and uh yeah yeah nothing nothing came from it man but i mean i'm sure you had somewhat of a similar experience with basketball too i mean going into your, i mean i played with you your sophomore year and you were that sharp shooter that we all loved but going in your senior year was that what type of experience was that like for you because i mean totally different sport totally different atmosphere yeah so that was actually I mean, as you, as most of us experience, the recruiting process is really stressful no matter what's going on. But I had to like also pick which sport I was going to play because I was kind of, I was, I think I was equally good at both sports and I had like a couple glaring deficiencies in both sports, like my arm strength in base, in baseball and then like my lateral quickness in basketball. So I just wasn't like a complete player in either sport and made it, it made it hard to pick which one. And so, yeah, I went to Regis on a basketball scholarship, but they said I could play baseball. And That's right. that made me, you know, that made the decision easy because I was, it would have been really hard to give up one or the other. But I should have known, like, I think that it, I, I learned quickly when I got to Regis that it just wasn't going to work in both sports because I'd fin- I finished my first basketball season and the, and the baseball team had already played like eight games. And I showed up for baseball, and my swing was fucking it was just so shitty. And like, <laughs> I was seen as like an outsider, and I was friends with all the basketball guys. And there was this weird like basketball baseball rivalry at Regis. So like, and I had made huh. friends with all the basketball team right away. And so when I showed up to the baseball field, I felt this kind of like coldness. It was it was kind of odd. Um, yeah, that is that is peculiar, dude. Yeah, but co- college, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so you decided to go pro and what what was it like when you first showed up to the minor leagues it was sick dude so literally they like 
they kind of mind fuck you at first because they flew me into the trop which is where the tampa bay rays played the major league team yeah fly me into tampa bay stay at a, stay at a really nice hotel um the next morning wake up early or excuse me fly in go to go to a game right meet mm. meet joe madden who um is like a big time manager in the major leagues he won the world series with the cubs in 2016 yeah they bring you on the field i mean they do all this stuff you sit in a box and and then the next day they drive you down at like six in the morning you get all your blood work done and then you you go out on the field and it's like a completely different atmosphere right it's like it's the grind of the grind mm. and so i moved to port charlotte florida which is about an hour and 20 minutes south of tampa it's it's there's nothing there dude i mean in all honesty anybody that tells you that there is a lot to do there is just <laughs> bullshitting you uh there's a it's a very older community um they like to keep us out of trouble and so i actually went out there on my own my parents didn't come with me at all i wanted to do this on my own and so it was it was a big adjustment for me you know it was um leaving small town ashland leaving all my friends that summer and, and moving down there and really getting into the grind of it so um we would we would get up every day at 6 a.m go out to the field be out on the field for a solid you know 10 to 12 hours depending on the day could be eight hours but we were there man i mean it was it was a it was a full-time job um yeah and i i was lucky enough to be taken in a round where i was compensated some money but there's a lot of people who are taken later on and you know are given a thousand dollars for their services and wow. i mean you know and then they're getting meal money each week 120 dollars of meal money um depending on and this changes with each level don't get me wrong yeah so as you go up the ranks you earn more money right because mm. um, you're more of a quote-unquote priority but regardless when when you're 18 um and you're doing that it, it, it being involved in that right away it was it was a wake-up call it's like wow this is this is the real deal this is what minor league baseball is all about yeah um so port charlotte was cool though it was on the gulf coast which is uh on the west side of florida um and and it, it grew on me over time man but it was so much different than oregon dude oh my god <laughs> you, i mean you live in you live in denver now but just going from mountains to not just nothing Besides yeah. the ocean, it was it was a big change for me, man. Yeah. What so like, were you immediately doing all of what the stereotypes say, like just grueling bus rides, um, playing? Like you already said that you're playing like twelve hours a day. What was that first year like in general? No, not quite, man. A lot of, um, you know, as you work up the ranks, that definitely does happen. But mm. a lot of people have the, the um, the idea wrong with the levels of minor league baseball. So, and I did too when I first went into it. Hmm. But there's usually six or seven levels underneath each major league affiliate. Yeah, so, nice. when I moved to Florida, I went to the Gulf Coast League, which is literally rookie ball. Hmm. So, they bring in high schoolers and some college people um, that they've drafted to that level. And then, so after rookie ball is advanced rookie ball. And then there is short season A ball, and then there's long season A ball, single A, double A, triple A major leagues. Mm. And 
For us, in my first year, the Gulf Coast League was only about 45 minutes to an hour drive to the Twins location and the Baltimore Orioles location. Mm. And those are the only two uh, organizations that we played. Mm. So it's it's kind of a confusing system. When you show up to spring training, right? Yeah. You, you do that for a month straight. No, no days off, you're just in it for a month. Mm. And then if you stay back and you don't go to a full season team, a long season team, which is a 162 game or 145 game season, depending on what level you're at, um, then you're just playing in essentially practice games mm. to continue to develop and evolve your skills. Um, so it's called extended spring training. So since I got drafted out of high school and I was young, they kept me in extended spring training mm. and I would just go to Sarasota and Fort Myers, Florida and play the twins Orioles and Boston Red Sox affiliates. Mm. Um, so it's really confusing. Like those games don't technically quote unquote count, but they keep statistics. And then after you play for three, three and a half months, then you break off to a, um, a team that you actually have a record. It's, it's like a bizarre system, dude, but it's yeah. a way so that they can keep track of their players and how they um, continue to craft and get their skills better. Okay, interesting. And what were they working on with you when you first got there? Was there a, um, a skill or set of skills that they emphasized with you early on? Um, yeah, it was mainly about becoming more consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, they draft, they draft everybody because of, especially pitchers, because they have a good enough arm, right? But it's about becoming consistent mentally and physically to repeat your delivery over and over again and be, and throw strikes over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it was really about quieting down my delivery a little bit and having that mental consistency to throw strikes, you know, one after another. And that was always my problem is in high school, I got away with it, man. I could, I could just throw, you know, in the low nineties and and it would be way out of the zone and kids wouldn't really know how to handle it. So they'd swing at it. But yeah, as you jump into the professional game, uh, players are a lot better. You know, they see the pitches better and they know if it's going to be out of the zone in the, you know, blink of an eye. So, they won't swing at it. And so that was really my struggle. So trying to become more consistent with my delivery and approach. Um, and then also the mental side of the game too. Yeah. When you first showed up, did, did you struggle mentally at all with, I, I, I recently spoke to Tyron Holmes who played in the NFL out of Southern Oregon and he, him and I shared the experience of a little bit of like imposter syndrome of mm-hmm. showing up and not feeling totally like you belong in some like subconscious way and having to work through that. I'm wondering that, but I've, I saw other players at Regis show up and not have that experience whatsoever. Did you, what was your mental state like in that first year in the minor leagues? Well, it was definitely part of that, man. Um, I took on a really poor mindset at that time, which was that I wasn't the best player. And so I needed to work the hardest. Mm. And what that, to me, that only meant the physical work hard, right? I wasn't putting in the mental preparation and the mental effort to really get to that next level. I was doing, I, I physically, I was in great shape. You know, I was taking care of my body as best as I could, 
but really mentally turning it on when I needed to, that's where I struggled. And so then the imposter idea that you just said did become a part of my reality. Mm -hmm. Um, slowly over time too. It wasn't like it just hit me, Mm. but since I wasn't putting in that mental effort, it crept in. And then one day it was just like, boom, I was like, Oh shit. Mm. Like I, I don't feel like I'm actually as good as I am. Um, and that, that hurt me, man. Cause I mean, my whole life I, I had been gifted and, you know, was cream of the crop, um, yeah. in terms of talent wise, you know, and I played with a lot of really good players. And then I got to this point where, you know, you see players that are just straight up better than you and you have to find ways to get them out and to work around them. And I didn't believe in myself enough to do that consistently. Mm. Um, so my first year was a real grind, man. I remember calling Chuck Thacker, who was a longtime teacher in Ashland, Oregon, and also a pitching coach for many years and still is like a, you know, a father figure to me and mm-hmm. just straight up being lost. Yeah. And, um, yeah, on, on the verge of tears, just feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And that was, you know, as a 19 year old kid, looking back on that, it's, uh, that's a tough thing to feel when you feel like you have it all figured out and then you get hit with reality real quick. Yeah. Do they have any resources at that level of the minor leagues for, mental coaching they they do they do um i forget his name lance i think lance Mm. he would go around to each affiliate um and work on mindfulness Mm. and one of the most uh beautiful practices i took away from his approach was you step onto the mound take a deep breath you find a rock on the ground take a deep breath and then you pick up the target, right? Then you pick up the catcher. Mm. And then when he gives you the sign, take a deep breath and then go into the, your delivery, right? So it really, and you do that with each pitch. Mm. Yeah. And so it's a way to help still bring stillness to the moment and to put your energy that's all over the place into that rock. Mm. And it's a very, it was a very grounding practice for me. And it was hard to pick, it was hard to actually implement when I was on, on the mound. I mean, at times, you know, uh, cause your mind's running a thousand miles an hour, Yeah. but he really had a nurturing way of approaching the bigger picture of life and applying that into the game, um, to help cater and, you know, students that we all were we were students of the game of baseball um and how how to really breathe through those tough times and work through those tough times yeah that's awesome that sounds kind of like um some of the stuff i adopted with my free throw routine i had a really tough time with my confidence mid in the middle of my career where all of a sudden i just couldn't shoot anymore and i had been i had been recruited for shooting And so it was just this mental spiral of like not Mm. feeling, not feeling like I belonged on the team and then ultimately like falling out of the playing rotation, but still being on full scholarship. So just feeling like I wasn't earning my keep. And then that just compounded into my free throw and my shooting percentage just dropping terribly. Um, Yeah. And then, yeah, ultimately it was 
learning how to meditate, the very basics of meditation at that point. And then some of those hacks that you describe, like rather than thinking about all the consequences of missing or even airballing a free throw, which was that stuff was humming through my head while I, while I stood there, especially when my head coach was watching. It was focusing on my feet on the floor, um, actually noticing like how the ball felt in my hands when I first caught it, and then going into a very deliberate breathing routine. And all that stuff just basically served to get myself out of the stories I was telling myself and getting out of like the ego mind and just letting my body shoot. And it wasn't, yeah, like you said, it wasn't easy to implement right away, but over time it, it definitely helped me. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Well, and I think that was the other challenging thing for me is my worth was like already predetermined mm. because of like the round that I was drafted in, right? So there was an expectation put on uh, how I should be doing and performing. And I think that that weighed on me as well. And I think as athletes in general, we, we hold ourselves um, already at a high level. And so... Yeah, it's it's beautiful when mindfulness can get implemented, especially from a young age, and yeah. um, and work through those types of you know things that happen in the games and in life. Yeah, definitely, um, and especially I think you and I probably had a similar experience of growing up in a small town in Oregon. I mean, I had the experience of thinking I was much more athletic, much better than I was. <laughs> Um, just cause I was putting up 20 points a game in the, whatever the Southern sky conference. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I'd get to, I got to Regis and all of the other guards, I'm doing these drills with the other guards where you like, you know, come hard off a ball screen, split the double team, finish at the rim. And I remember once I like, I went first and I split the double team and finished, tried to finish over the coach with my left hand. And the next like three guys in the drill all split the double team and went up and like tomahawk dunked. And I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> this isn't Kansas anymore. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, that's hilarious, dude. Yeah. And then, yeah, just, yeah, all of that. And then, yeah, just the lack of adversity in Southern Oregon, too. I mean, you know, you get some playing on the Mustangs. You play against good players. And I played some AAU basketball. But I just feel like so much of it was so smooth for me in high school that I didn't have to face either i almost feel like if i had played football for coach hall i could have gotten some really tough coaching that would have helped me but um yeah yeah it was i was not prepared for for the next level until later in my career so how did your how did you progress can you tell me about like the next couple of years in the minor leagues and how that went yeah for sure man um i moved up pretty steadily so year by year i was uh, going up as you know the, what how I should have been mm-hmm. uh, so I went to I went from rookie ball to advanced rookie ball and then advanced rookie ball to short season ball mm-hmm. and then that next year when I was at short season which was my third season I got I really struggled and I got hurt I partially tore my owner collateral ligament which is a ligament in, in your elbow it's almost where your funny bone is mm-hmm. um, deep inside there and so I, I was out for a little bit of time, really struggled mentally after that uh, for the season up in Wappingers Falls, New York. Mm. And so I came back the next following season, 2014, um, 
and spring training came around arm was feeling pretty decent was doing really well and um broke off to bowling green kentucky so this is my first year going into a full actual full season team so this was the first level where you would break off after spring training and not go to extended spring training mm. so i went to kentucky mentally was on a different level than i'd ever been before and in a, in a good way you're feeling good in a really good way okay. yeah i actually uh it was the best year that i had professionally mm. Mm. and I about I want to say five or six innings into the season I was a reliever at this time so I'd always come in and do about one or two innings of work mm-hmm. and I felt something in my elbow again and I was like fuck like mm. this, this is not good but I was really competitive at the time and um, wanted to keep competing because I was doing really well so I threw I continued on through about 20 more innings or so, 25, actually made made the all-star team that season. Um, But literally the week before the all-star game, I was was pitching in a game and I was in so much pain, dude. I I looked over at the bench and just like called time and pointed at my elbow. Um, Hmm. So they took me out. I immediately, I think two days later, flew down to Tampa, got an MRI and had surgery the next day. Wow. And that was in 2015. Um, that w- when did I have surgery? March, March 2014. And from then on, I mean, it was six months of just rehab. So I stayed in Florida for the off season and uh, would go to the ballpark three days a week. And then that progressed after a couple months of five days a week and working out, trying to get stronger, doing the little strengthening, the smaller muscles in the back and the shoulder. Um, and it was a grind, man. I mean, I was living in a hotel room with my best friend at the time, Lenny Linsky, and we had all of our belongings just in this hotel room. We were in it for four months together mm-hmm. and, um, didn't have a ton of traveling to do, but I mean, just the mental, being 24 years old and feeling that isolated was mentally challenging for me. I mean, I was still, you know, living a very blessed life and, you know, recovering and I had the surgery paid for. And there's so many things that I can count off that I was grateful for. But, but at that time, um, it was, I was in a darker place. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, yeah, there wasn't really a ton of support around either. You know, um, I had Lenny, which was great, and I had some other teammates that were there. But it, for the most part, man, there wasn't a lot going on in that area. It was just very boring and isolated um, to keep us out of trouble. So that was so. After that off season ended, I was still recovering. You know, because it's about a year long recovery process until you can get back into games. Mm. And I got back into games, really struggled. And then I got released in August of 2015. So it was... Were you struggling? About, was your velocity down? Were you struggling with control when you first got back? What was that like? It was it was control, man. Uh, mm. My velocity was a lot lower. I mean, I, I was always a 91 to 93. Yeah. You know, could touch 95. 
Um, but when I, when I was in my money zone, it was 91 to 93. And after I had surgery, it takes a little bit of time to come back. It's not like you just like bounce back into it. Um, but I was 89 to 91, you know, and I think that that probably would have gone up a little bit if I'd had more time, but it's, there's politics involved, man. I mean, it's a business, you know, they're trying to make the hard decisions to see who, who they want to continue to pay. And I mean, you have 200 minor league players or however many minor league players there are. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money to fork out each year. So they had uh, made a decision based off of years prior. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, that was a challenging day, man. I remember walking into the locker room and you see it before where guys lockers are just packed up, you know, their name tags are moved off their thing. They're all their stuff's in a garbage bag. And that's when, you know, that's what, that's how they fucking tell you. Uh, yeah pretty much man and then you go into the office god yeah it was it was savage dude um but i remember walking in and kind of just standing there and seeing all my stuff and i was like wow oh man that's brutal and yeah and my the manager at the time told me you know to continue to play and i should go try and do independent ball which is you know where scouts can see you and potentially pick you up for a um major league affiliate but i was pretty lost in that moment man i I remember i was i just cried for like a couple hours Mm. so it was it was tough yeah it was tough yeah i can imagine that's that's really heavy yeah it reminds me of i think i mentioned this once in the podcast about this um this tight end for the broncos i forgot his name but i read his book about he did a really cool job like stripping away the glamour that many fans perceive about being in the NFL where it's all just wealth and fame and girls and touchdown catches. And he, he, he talked about, you know, the, how fucking brutal it is. And yeah, he described the scene of him first getting cut, um, and how just kind of cold the whole thing was. And, you know, even people who he thought were on his side just all of a sudden disappeared. And yeah, that's, that's, that's gotta be really, really hard. So well, and I think, go ahead. you know, I think, sorry, just going back on it a little bit. I think what I was so taken back by was like the, these people I had been building a re- such a strong relationship with for the past five years of my life, you know, like a lot of these guys that I had been around every single day mm-hmm. for months and months and months from all over the world. I mean, I played with people from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Japan, uh, Mexico. It was it was beautiful to be able to experience all the different cultures and types of people that uh, were in this game, and yeah. the friendships and the camaraderie and the companionship that I had built. And it felt like all in one moment. Not only was my career done, but I was losing all of that. Yeah. And so I think that's what made it so tough for me, um, but also has given me the. It, being able to do that was such a gift in itself and it was a gift that kept on giving later on down the road so yeah and so did you what did you do after that did you try independent independent ball i didn't man no um i drove across the country by myself i i spent about five six days doing it Mm -hmm. i actually stayed in uh colorado springs one night and did hanging hanging lake oh dope you know you know hanging lake i'm sure yeah. you do yeah yeah it was sick man um 
enjoyed that and then drove the rest of the way up to Oregon and uh, ended up moving in with a couple of my really close friends there and started working two restaurant jobs. Mm. Uh, and I did that for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then I had an opportunity to either go to Australia and live in Australia for about six months and just work restaurant and figure it out and explore or take advantage of a scholarship that I had from the Tampa Bay Rays to go to school. So when I first signed in 2010, they, since I had already been committed to go to college, they offered to include that within the salary that they were going to be, you know, paying me. Mm. Um, And it was only a 10 year thing. So I had to to go to school within a 10 year period. Mm. And at this time it was 2016. So I looked up some, community colleges on the west coast uh wanted to get out of oregon and at this time i was like dude i'm done with baseball you know like i want to do something different yeah um i don't know what that is but something and i typed in santa monica community colleges and santa monica college popped up like that in california la and um that was that was the move man nice yeah I know that baseball is a huge, and sports in general are a huge part of your life growing up, and then you were a professional doing it all the time. What was it like when you were finally retired? You know, it, it kind of just, it came on without me really even knowing it. It was, it just, it got to the point where it crept, I was away from the game for such a long time that I just was like, well, I guess I'm not playing it ever again. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, 24 is still really young man i mean in baseball years you're starting to creep up there which is bizarre but right right even when i was 26 i was in a good enough athletic shape and could have built my you know stamina back up to try again Mm -hmm. um but it just got to the point where i was like when i really decided that i was going to go to school that was the moment where i was where i told myself that i wanted to prove that i was more than just a baseball player mm-hmm. um i my whole life i just thought i was this jock and this dumb jock <laughs> that was terrible at school and I, I was dude i mean i was not a great student at all in high school uh and i was around a lot of very intelligent bright young people i mean yourself included mason Jordan, all my, you know, good friends and Nick Hall, Lucas Stone. I mean, dude, the the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I wanted to t- I wanted to do, to prove to myself that I could do more than just be an athlete. Mm-hmm. But I I didn't really understand what that what that meant and that it actually was letting go of the game that I loved from the moment i picked up a baseball Mm -hmm. so it felt like the right move but when you're away from the game for a bit you really actually see how much you appreciate it and how much it provided and provides still um even just watching it on the television or going to a baseball game at dodger stadium i mean it's it brings a lot of joy to my life and so to walk away from that at that time, I didn't, I didn't realize um, how much joy I was giving up. Yeah, yeah. And did you um, struggle with what a lot of us dedicated athletes struggle with, which is something of a crisis of identity? 
when you were trying to transition? I know you were determined to prove to yourself that you were more than just an athlete. And I had a similar experience actually when, um, when I started to suck in college and I just ended up hating basketball. It it was what used to be my biggest joy and kind of sanctuary in life had become this immiserating activity for me. And so I just, and I was almost like forced to find some other way to succeed. So in the middle of my sophomore year, I started taking math classes just because I I was like, okay, at least I can control this aspect of my life. If I, if I do the homework and I study for the tests and I can just like getting an A on a math assignment felt so good because I was like, sucking so bad in basketball um but then and so i luckily i was forced to kind of develop and i learned how to meditate too and i got deep into reading and studying meditation but even you know so i I thought i was prepared and i think i was prepared as far as athletes go for transitioning out um because i had other interests i was excited for the future and a lot of athletes are just totally stuck in the glory days and they don't know they're directionless and it's, it's actually kind of sad a lot of athletes who are on scholarship end up not graduating, which is terrible. Mm. But um, I was I was surprised to find that even when even with all this other stuff I had going on and all these other passions to pursue, I did feel a crisis of identity when I was done. And it, it was a it was like having a coach to report to, a season to train for, and this kind of anchor to my life was giving me a meaning that I was kind of invisible. I didn't really ever appreciate it because I had been doing it since I was tiny and then B it was social like it was it's so much it's so easy for me to just isolate because I had always just been handed social this like being in the locker room or having friends on the team every year and so when um when my basketball career ended it was you know and a lot of my best friends from college actually moved from Colorado it was kind of jarring to not have that part of my day anymore to not have like built-in interactions with my best friends and so yeah I definitely have struggled and I'm still putting together ways to kind of fill that void of being on a team curious if you can relate or pick up on any of that um, in terms of sports and identity yeah I definitely relate with a lot of that man Um, I think that you stated that beautifully and the struggle is real Mm -hmm. and Moving down to Santa Monica, I didn't really know a lot of people. And so that was a struggle in itself to, you know, put myself out there and um, not really have that camaraderie like I talked about for such a long time. And even living in Ashland for the year after, you know, baseball ended for me, I still was in in that nurturing community with some of my closest friends. And so that was never it, it didn't feel like a struggle right then and there even though baseball was over with because I had those people that cared about me so much. But when I moved down to California, I was on my own. Mm -hmm. So, and at this time too, I was getting away from drinking. Um, I, I, I really didn't want to drink anymore because when I did drink, it was to a very dangerous level and it led to other things and it just wasn't healthy anymore um, Mm -hmm. at all. I mean, it never really was healthy, but yeah. I think that that also took away another outlet for me um, to be able to meet people and be exposed to some new friends potentially. So, yeah, I really was on the grind with going to school and that helped me kind of like you were saying, I had something that I could 
bounce back on and be like, all right, I need to get this homework assignment done. You know, I need, I need to study for this test. And like, I'm determined to do this. So I didn't really worry about my identity too much. Yeah. Because I still had, you know, I could still work out and I was really becoming quite obsessive with that too, um, which was dangerous in itself. Mm -hmm. And that was when I had an identity crisis, man. Um, Four months into being down here in California, I was in really good shape. I was at 215 with 3% body fat. Um, My God. Yeah, it was dangerous. I mean, not not smart, but, you know, I looked really great and I was very obsessive with that at that time. And I got a blood clot in my leg, man. Mm. And I don't know what it was driven from. I think it was a combination of um, being in school and, you know, being prescribed ADHD medication, taking high doses of that Mm. and working out excessively, eating you know, excessively, there was a combination of a lot of things, but once my athleticism was taken away and my ability to move through life with distraction, Mm. that was when I really lost it, man. Mm. Um, I was on a crutch for about three months, going to class, would come home, lay on my bed and do, you know, because I was in so much pain at this point. Blood clots are very severe. I don't know if you know a lot about them, but no, no, I don't. Yeah, so it's it was called a deep vein thrombosis, and essentially, a lot of times, a doctor will ask you, "Have you traveled recently, um, or have you had any you know traumatic injury of any sort?" Because that's when they usually happen, or as you get older, um, and it has to do a lot of times with a lack of movement. So sitting on planes for long periods of time is a lot of times when they happen, mm. but the our blood clots all the time but when it happens in deep veins or in your arteries um it can break off and travel to your lungs or your heart or your brain Mm. and very very quickly kill you um so mine ended up getting to the point where my legs started to turn blue because i'm such a stubborn fuck and go to the er Uh, so so you felt it you felt something was wrong but you just Tried, oh, to, yeah. tried to rub some dirt on it. And, uh, yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Um, I was hobbling around and it got to the point where, you know, I needed to go to the ER. And so kind of going back to that, that was really when I lost my identity. Um, and even though it's been over three years, I've been struggling with that since. Mm. And I continued to use Adderall very heavily to get through school, which helped me a lot. Um, Adderall has its place, but not when, not in the ways that I was using it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was smoking all day, every day to cope with pain. Mm. So I was, I was just lost, man. Mm. I was completely lost, mm. uh, but was doing well in school. So like, I was like, Oh, fuck it. You know, I'm fine. I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 I'm, I'm getting through it and I'm, and I'm proving to myself what I want to prove, but really it was all in a haze Mm. yeah yeah and i'd like to talk about how your relationship with drugs and alcohol changed um so you've initially decided to quit drinking but then you were on you were on a lot of adderall and smoking all the time 
And have you recently decided, I think you told me on the phone that you decided to go sober almost entirely for a while? That is true, man. Um, I got to a point where I was driving with my mom after a, a voice lesson um, that we had gone to do together. Mm. And she's she was a singer for 40 mm. years, 40 plus years. And I love to sing as well, but she was in town visiting me and we were driving back and I hadn't smoked um, or you know taken any of my medication that day. And we had some traffic and I was frustrated already because I sounded like shit in the voice <laughs> lesson. <laughs> oh, it was so bad, dude. And I wanted to do so well because she was there and wanted to impress her. <clears throat> and we had some traffic and I like slammed on the brakes and she gets really car sick. And she kind of gave me this look like, like you're driving really aggressively. Mm. And I kept driving. And I did it again where I like was, you know, on somebody's ass without even knowing it. Mm. And I remember slamming on the brakes again and she, out of the corner of my eye, I just kind of see her like bow her head down a little bit. And I just start to hear her cry. Mm. And I looked over at her after a moment passed and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, you just keep getting angrier, Ian. Oh, man just keep getting angrier and came home. Um, she was staying next door at, our, at my godmother's house. And I took an hour nap, woke up, had all my pot, all my substances, everything that I was doing. And I walked over to her just crying and said, like, I, I want to change. You know, I, I want, I don't want to be this way. And because it was building, man, I mean, that anger that was deep inside me kept building and building. And I, I wasn't being exposed to it until the person that was closest to me um, showed me. Mm. And so we dumped it all kind of a classic, like dump it all. And at this point, I wasn't drinking, luckily. Um, yeah. But it really took me seeing my own mother, you know, look at me in the eyes and tell me that to make a change. And I'm so grateful that she did. And that was when I started to become even further, like I was even more lost, man, because then there wasn't anything to continue, mm. like continue to distract me. Right. So I, I felt lost, but I had a distraction. Yeah. When I got sober, I was in it, man there was nowhere else to go. Yeah. Um, so I started going to meetings, AA meetings, and that just wasn't for me, dude. Like people would like, I would leave the meetings and I think that they're amazing for people that need them um, yeah. and are in a place where they need that type of support. But I remember I left a meeting, it was my like second one and this dude's like, so what, you know, what have you been doing? Like, what have you been taking? And I'm like, I'm like, bro, like that's, I appreciate you reaching out to me, but, that's none of your business. Yeah. Um, I think the approach that I needed was, how can I be here for you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, here's my phone number, just that, rather than being like, so what What were you doing? Mm. I mean, it's, it's a way to relate, um, but it just felt like a very forward approach for me at a time where I was really vulnerable and very scared and intimidated by the whole thing. Yeah. And... 
Um, so, but that process was, that was a lot, um, for me. And I've had so much support throughout it all, man. I've had a lot of people that chose to get sober and, um, made that conscious effort. And I was completely sober for about a, a little over a year and a half, I think. Mm. Um, I had, and now I'm at a place in my life where I haven't had a drink for well over two years, um, two and a half years, but now I'm at a place in my life where I can better understand what makes me tick with a clear head. Yeah. And I understand that for me, what works is to allow certain movements of energy to make their way into the present moment and take them for what they're worth. And if I feel, you know, um, like I want to indulge and have some fun in a specific moment with, with safety and, um, a good intention Mm -hmm. and I'll go for it. But most of the time, um, my intentions were not pure. Mm. And so it became dangerous and sobriety helped me recognize what is my intention? Mm-hmm. And it helped me recognize the beauty of that process and that there are a lot of urges that can come and go very quickly. Mm-hmm. And to be mindful of that and understand it, appreciate it, respect it, and you know, move through life with a little bit more presence. Nice, man. Yeah. Thank you for that. Is was the party culture pretty intense in the minor leagues? Did that propagate for you? Because I remember you liked to party in high school, but I'm wondering how, what you think may, if you were to go back, what you would try to do differently in the minor leagues, or what you would advise a young athlete who's going into the minor leagues um, about their relationship with drugs and partying. For me, I was I was a partier. Um, so it was tough because then I would hang out with people that were on that similar level um, uh-huh. and wanted to kind of involve themselves with that. And I mean, at that time, you know, being young and dumb and having money, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was an option, and you can make we can make it happen. Um, I think the best advice that I could give a young athlete that's exposed to that is to remember the moments when you were a child or enjoying, enjoying the game that you love the most and, you know, preparing for the game well before and the night before sleeping with your mitt or, um, just getting dressed up in uniform days before the game even happens. I mean, these are things that I used to do that I didn't take with me in that moment in time where I cherished the game at a level where nothing could get in the way. And I saw the game as it was and respected it with with all of my heart. And for me, I got lost in the distraction of trying to be liked. I didn't do what was in my heart because I wanted to be liked by other people and, and have that approval from other people. Yeah. And even though I knew that it wasn't the necessarily quote unquote right thing to do, I wanted to fit in. Yeah. And so I would go to any lengths to do that. And it became 
um, drugs and alcohol became a way for me to fit in, which sounds bizarre, but there is a, there is a, you know, a drinking culture within, um, the game. I mean, you get done after a really long day and you go have some, some food and you get a beer. I mean, you know, and then for me that would turn into too many beers and I couldn't control it. And so I think if there's anything that I've learned, it's to really find, find the intention behind the choices that you make yeah. and to remember where all the love started from in the first place with the game that you're playing. That's great, man. Yeah. I love that. I, and I really relate to that too. I, you probably remember me in high school. I was pretty much sober Sally, um, very dedicated to my craft and to sports, but also just didn't really feel that comfortable at parties in high school. I did just, mm-hmm. I like, I never felt like I knew, I felt like everyone else at the party knew what they were supposed to be doing and I didn't. And so yeah, yeah. I always just felt better like on buses or in locker rooms and playing video games with my friends. So it was as much Which of a, amazing. yeah, but, but I, I'm wondering, yeah, what I think I'm lucky that I didn't get into partying early, but I, I also think that I was in some ways ill-prepared for college because I got to, got to Regis and I mean, they had gone like three and 19 the year before or something. And I, so I should have, mm. I should have known that the culture might not have been that great, but I showed up and there was just this intense party culture. And I felt the same way. Like I, I really wanted to fit in. I wanted to make new friends and I, a quick way to fit in was to, you know, party hard. I'd like just drink a lot. And it was this very deep ingrained party culture and like this accountability almost of like every Saturday night, like you're showing up and even some, you know, in the preseason, it was Friday nights and some of the players would drink. We had Friday, Saturday games and some of the players had like the, well, we're going to lose anyway tomorrow. So we might as well party. Mm. (laughs) Oh yeah. um, So yeah, I think that I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, the abusing alcohol weekend after weekend definitely contributed to my mental health issues midway through college. And this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but when I finally, you know, I, I, I was seeing a sports psychologist, I was learning how to meditate. And when you, when you start meditating, you, you realize quickly, you just become in touch with some of those impulses, like you were saying, of do I want mental clarity right now or do I want to distract myself? Do I want to just, you know, push the pain away or do I want to like sink into it and let it overcome and like, you know, work through it? But I was so, and this is, you know, part of my own working through this too, like you said, like trying to fit in or, or doing what you know is in your heart. I, I didn't want to like let down the, the party culture because I loved my friends and they're all great people. And they were just, you know, some of them were still in that mode. And as I was kind of transitioning out of it, sometimes I would go to par- like pre-games where everybody's getting fucked up playing drinking games. And I'd literally go with like an empty Coors can and I'd fill it up with water when no one was looking. So I could like pretend to still like be chugging beer. Uh, That's great. And I'd be like pounding waters throughout the night because I was so I just didn't want to like I didn't want another miserable anxiety induced morning of being hung over on Sunday or whatever it was. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And then after I graduated, it's interesting too how like weed can sneak up on you too because like big time. I I, 
I had never smoked pot. I, it always made me anxious. I just didn't like it. But then after college, I got some like CBD dominant weed and I had just a few amazing nights of like laughing, watching comedies. And I woke up the next morning like, wow, like I got inebriated and I'm not hung over. This is amazing. This is the best thing. And then I became like a, I was so pro weed for a while that all of a sudden, like I went home for a summer, I remember, and I was smoking every night before bed. And slowly over time, like the magic went away. Like I wasn't getting the giggles anymore. I wasn't stoked on music. I wasn't like all the great things about pot, which I still enjoy time to time, had just become like, it was a kind of a way to escape at the end of the day. And it was just like, oh, I'm high again and I'm eating junk food. And like, <laughs> and I, and I, feel, I just feel a little bit sadder every morning. Uh, so, yeah, it's yeah, um, what a shitty way to wake up. Right. It's like the different no. kind of hangover. It's like it's not it's not like the pounding headache and like terrible feeling of, a, of, a, of getting drunk. But you just feel like kind of stupid, like no clarity. You just want like a shitty breakfast. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's tough. So well, that sort of happened with me. I would I would just be smoking so much, it would just be like wake up and smoke. And yeah. I I I wouldn't even realize that I started waking and baking, you know, every day. It's like, what am I doing, dude? <laughs> like, what am I actually doing? Yeah, and a lot of and it's so it's I mean, weed's so tied up in basketball culture that there. Are, you know, some of my teammates who would, yeah, all summer long smoke every all day, every day. Um, I think, yeah, I think a lot of us, I don't know, I don't, probably not just an athlete thing, but it's it's because drugs are so available now. And I'm not anti-drug by any means. I think it can be... Neither am I. Yeah, I mean, you can use them skillfully or, or otherwise, but it can. a lot of us fall into this pattern of dependence. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to really get that because we know like we, there are counselors that would come talk to us about like the downsides of drinking too much and they'd say all of the things that I now totally believe but we would be like that night going out like mocking what they'd said to us it was just like you're in such a different mind frame at that point so uh, yeah 100% man yeah so that was my drug rant um do you, <laughs> do you, uh so you are now exploring acting and modeling right when did that how did you first get into that how long has it been and you want to just talk talk me through a little bit of that transition sure i was in school working at gold's gym in venice uh the famous gold's gym where arnold schwarzenegger kind of put things on the map it's an amazing gym an amazing community and culture to be a part of people from all over the world will come and uh literally just to pay a day pass and work out there and a casting director or this one guy walked in and um, who had been coming in over, you know, over time and we had built a relationship and he asked me if I was doing any type of modeling or acting. And I said, no. And he said, dude, you should really, you know, look into this. I think it could be, um, something that you would enjoy and, you know, yada, yada. So I ended up, I actually live and have been renting out a small backspace from a family here in Venice. And she is a casting director, um, which is amazing. And that in itself just kind of fell into my lap, but she got me in touch with this amazing gentleman. His name's James Reese. He's been working with me um, pretty much from the beginning of when this all transpired two years ago, a little over two years ago. And we just started shooting and um, learning how to build, you know, a moment um, with a character 
and also just really becoming more still and present mm. and um, creating that through a photo. Mm. And it, it's taught me a lot, man. I mean, the acting kind of came a little bit later on, but modeling for me has been a struggle in itself too because, you know, going to these auditions and casting calls and um, I signed with this agency called LA Models, which is a, a well-known agency in Los Angeles. And they send you emails for casting calls that you go on at certain times of the day throughout the week. And if you're lucky, then uh, you show up and you do what the client asks for. And if you book the job, then it's great. But uh, many times you're not going to book that fucking job. Mm. You're, you're going there and putting yourself out there and exposing yourself. And um, I was learning all this on the fly. And for me, I struggled a lot with once again, feeling like I needed to be liked. Mm -hmm. and not really truly being myself and it comes down to just not loving still learning how to love who i am yeah and working through that and so this this evolution of over the past two years with la models has been a gift for me because i've been struggling so much with being in front of a camera and just accepting and surrendering that i don't have to be anything else other than who other than me mm -hmm. And if I trust that and tell my truth in the moment, that's enough, whether I book the job or not. Mm. It's not about that. It's about telling my truth of who I am and letting that shine. Mm. And I've, I think that that's been one of the most beautiful transitions that I've taken away from acting and modeling is that I'm learning to tell my truth more mm. um, and expose that to the world on a daily basis and whether whether it's in front of a camera or not that's not what's important what's important is to understand my process understand others pro others and their processes and how they move through the world and respect that as much as i can and honor their the way that they move through life um, in the same way that i would honor the way that i do and so it's been a big um development of seeing the human experience in a different way mm. and seeing that open up um through acting and modeling it sounds bizarre but it's just part of it you I, i've had to dive deeper into what makes me tick in order to better understand another person and how they tick um mm. and acting really really has helped bring that along but i haven't done any type of acting stuff dude i was mainly just taking classes and i actually just submitted my first thing on tape which was brutal um <laughs> meaning you know it's just i'm i'm learning man i'm like a little puppy learning yeah. how to walk yeah. uh but it's cool man it's cool to fuck up and just be wrong and or be right or there's there's no excuse me there's no right or wrong hmm. there's James says is that there's there's wise and unwise. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> I think that that's like a sick way to live life, man. Yeah, I, well, I admire you for really going for it, and it's like you said, if you're going to start any path, you're going to go through some, you know, the the first steps are often the hardest, but it's also really beautiful to put yourself out there. I'm sure, and to to focus on a new craft and. Um, so what kind of 
what what are your immediate goals let's say for the next few years with you know whether it's your career with acting and modeling or whatever else or spiritually what what are some of the things you're focusing on these days mainly now that i'm done with school i think for now at least i got the aa degree i think my my focus is really to continue to develop um, my spirit and that energy and put that forth put that towards acting and modeling and um, really diving deep into that man and, and giving it my all because I've always been scared of my creative side because it makes me feel the most alive. Mm. It makes me really fearful. It makes me feel extremely naked and vulnerable. Mm. And it's intimidating to do that in front of people and with people. Um, but I think I want to honor and give it a chance with as much effort as I can to allow the artists within me to break out and go for it. And in the process, I know how much I'm going to learn um, and continue to learn about life, kind of like what I talked about. It's already given me. But to be more present is definitely a huge goal of mine. Um mm-hmm. Because I think organically, a lot of things have developed without me really trying to do it. And um, I've been very lucky in that way. I've worked really hard at certain things and I've been given opportunities. But when, when things organically happen, usually for me is when the best outcome um, transpires too. So, and I also, my, my biggest, one of my biggest goals too, and this is a book I've been scared of. Have you ever heard of The Artist's Way? I think by so. By Julia Cameron. But I'm not familiar with it. I think I've heard the name before. What's it about? I started reading it. Yeah, I started reading it and it's like a 12 week program. Um, I think she actually based it off of the 12 steps, which is a, a AA term. Mm-hmm. So that's going back to people that are trying to get sober. Yeah. And essentially, it's like diving into the core of who we are as people and different there's different um, strategies that you go about with each week of reading and different tasks that you have to complete. And something that I've the one thing I read, like the first two chapters, and then it started getting where I actually had to dive in and do the hard work and I gave up on myself. Hmm. But one thing that I did take away from it that I still do very consistently is journaling Mm. so i usually wake up every morning and i'll write just a stream of consciousness or i'll write some intentions or i'll write about whatever you know i feel in that moment and i think continuing to do that is part of the development um of where where my goals are at is continuing to move with life with uh telling my truth mm. that's great man yeah that that's awesome what i'm curious about how you're implementing the journaling because i've i've seen the benefits of that when i'm able to do it um like a lot of things it's just a hard thing for me to, to keep to so when you wake up do you what does your morning look like when you journal uh, i'm just curious how you actually implement that that practically it got yeah it's tough man um i think for you 
like we've talked about, you you drink the Kool-Aid of meditation. And for me, it's that is my form of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wake up, have a cup of coffee, and almost I find the joy of it. You know, some mornings I don't want to fucking do it. I just don't. I'm like, I have other shit to do. Yeah. Why is this a priority for me? But then I recognize, like, it's a really healing way for me to uh, start the movement of the day and set my intention for what I want to bring to this day. And whether or not that happens, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I always think about what I actually feel like afterwards once I finish. Mm-hmm. And I'll usually do a page worth of writing. So you're just um, writing a, a full page of whatever comes to mind your or your intentions for the day. Um, is that kind of how it looks like? It really is just stream yeah. of consciousness? Yeah, a lot of time, the book, it's mainly just doing stream of consciousness. You literally write three pages of just what whatever your mind hmm. is spewing out, you know, and you just write. You just write it down. Hmm. And that evolved for me into um, writing what I what I am feeling in that moment with a little bit more clarity and thought. But now sometimes I'll choose a word, for instance, you know, Mm -hmm. like just, you know, gratitude. And I'll write about things that I'm grateful for Mm -hmm. in this moment. Um, Or I'll write about somebody that I had met, you know, the the day before that brought a lot of joy to my presence. Or it, it really doesn't matter. It's just about finding that stillness of the pen hitting the paper and feeling that rhythm Mm. Um, and doing that consistently and making it a priority. It's almost like brushing your teeth. Mm. You know, you're most of the time you're not going to leave your house in the morning before you, unless you brush your teeth. Yeah. It's the same thing with this. If you wake up and you feel inspired and you start attacking it day after day, it just becomes a part of your routine and it's, and it's something that, I've started to look forward to. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, and I, I think starting the day, what I found useful is starting the day with something like, like for you, it's journaling. For me, it's sitting in meditation. It's doing something that isn't externally oriented to start the day, I felt has been really helpful. So much of what I do and what I think a lot of us do is pursuing external goals, whether it's my data science career or working on this podcast or um, you know, just, you know, exercise, which when it's going right, it's, it's for its own sake, but it can often be pursuing some other goal or, you know, it used to be with basketball training. But when I sit and meditate to start the day, it's, it's really doing something for its own sake. And meditation can, can become goal oriented too, if you're, if you're not careful and that's when you're not practicing correctly. But when I'm in the right mind state, I mean, meditation is the reminder that to be okay with whatever, life is at this moment and just paying attention rather than trying to fix things um and Mm. so yeah i was actually journaling in my senior year of college and i found it really useful and maybe i'll um, yeah it's really ground it's just so grounding man yeah definitely and what are your how so what are your fitness and dietary practices these days you're obviously staying in good shape as a model and an actor and um, curious what your philosophy is right now on your health and fitness. I do intermittent fasting, mm. uh, usually 12 to 16 hours every day. Wow. Which has been great for me. I, I used to wake up, be that guy that would wake up and eat immediately and, you know, 
it really gives my digestive system a, a break from processing so much. Um, and, you know, I just try and eat mainly whole foods and get get the, a good amount of fiber in the diet, um, whether that's through, you know, lentils or beans or, you know, some type of uh, brown rice. I mean, I don't eat a ton of brown rice, but I think, and plenty of fruits and vegetables, but really just staying away from processed foods, that's been a huge thing for me. Mm-hmm. I actually don't have a full kitchen, so I, I bought, I got an Instant Pot, and I, that's made a huge difference for the way that I can prepare meals and what I actually put into my body on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, protein sources, I mainly go with uh, like, you know, sardines i love sardines dude are you a sardine fan <laughs> no that's that sounds intense should i be dude they're de- i mean they're delicious they're very nutrient dense food but yeah, i know heard, a lot I've of heard, people I've are heard, grossed I've, out i've heard they're it. i've heard they're really good for you what do you eat them with uh, a lot of times i put them in salads man they're super good um mm. in salads but it's just a really great protein source easy protein source um but chicken nice. turkey hard-boiled eggs those nice. are main main sources that i go for in terms of that but um, yeah, the eating thing has been a big, big part of my life too, in terms of like learning how to be healthy in that way too. Um, you know, binge eating, going from being an athlete to chilling out a little bit more and finding a, a good calorie intake each day. Um, yeah. but it's become more intuitive for me too. I think that I try and listen to my body and, uh, try and hear what it needs in as each day comes so depending like yesterday i went on like a six and a half mile hike so my body was dude it was like what the fuck are you doing you haven't done this in months <laughs> like you, you need to fuel up man like get some food in you now <laughs> and uh so it, it's it's become a process in itself man just trying to enjoy um enjoy each bite really taste each bite Mm-hmm. Uh, disconnect from the food. Sometimes I feel super rushed when I eat, and I don't have a lot of gratitude. And it's like, dude, where where am I? I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, you know what I mean. God, I have the same experience. Sometimes I'll just be fucking grubbing with both palms. Like, what am I trying to fucking like? <laughs> I'm just about to go read. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's what like, but you just like shove it down. So yeah. that's been a huge thing for me too, is finding appreciation for all the processes that brought the food to the plate that i'm eating from like the people the um all the soil the rain you know all of the elements that came into play um and finding some gratitude within that before i eat and taking that moment has helped me a lot with digestion it's helped me i mean it's weird dude but it but it works for me um nice yeah it's it's been cool well cool man well you ready for some uh rapid fire Let's let's get hot, dude. <laughs> All right, LeBron, uh, Kobe, or Jordan? Jordan. Cole, Kendrick, or Drake? Oh, God. <sighs> Kendrick, man. Yeah, nice. What is your favorite artist and or album to listen to when you're alone with headphones on? like an introspective mood or like a a car ride? Uh, Man, 
I listen to a lot of like kind of deep electronic music, mm. but not like heavy, heavy, uh, like dubstep, not that type of shit. Right. But just like nice rhythmic uh, electronic. Hmm. Nice. Um, is there a that type of vibe. Is, there, is there an artist that comes to mind in that? In that genre? Lane Eight, I think they're called Lane Eight. Okay. Cool. Um, they got some, they got some good stuff. Cool. Uh, what's something you failed at that has helped you grow or change in a positive way? Do you have a favorite failure? I even, by the way, I always have to cite this. I stole this from the Tim Ferriss podcast. So. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love his podcast too. Yeah. Um, Oh, failure. Wow. It's part of the rapid fire, huh? Uh, Maybe it's a bit deep for rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, but hey, you know, put me on, put me on my toes. I think, I think my greatest failure is that I haven't been telling the truth. Mm. And the reason I know that is because I'm beginning to tell my truth Mm. and it's been a shame to not be honest with myself um, because that holds a lot of the authenticity of what makes me me away from others Mm. and and a lot of this goes back to trying to be liked um, and wanting to be accepted Mm. and so for me that has to be the biggest failure that I've that I've had that's also taught me the most. Nice. That's great. All right, last one. If you could give one piece of advice to a high school senior athlete who's is either going D1 or going pro, you know, some high prospect senior, what would it be? To breathe. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I think we get caught up and lost in um, a lot of the hype and, you know, think about the future and it's to breathe and enjoy the moment for what it is. And that's what I really took away from the last dance, man. I don't know if if you've seen all of that yet, but there's one part where a guy talks about why Michael Jordan was so good Hmm. is because he was so present. Hmm. He never was anywhere else. And I think that that would be the one thing that I would um, urge on for people at that time in life is to just stay present and enjoy the moment. Nice. That's beautiful. Well, great, man. Did we, uh, did we miss anything you think? I don't know, dude. I mean, I felt, I feel pretty saucy about it. (laughs) Me too. Sauce podcast. Yeah, that was, that was great. So yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on. And, and yeah, I, um, I still remember just, being in high school and looking up to you and you were always so cool to be around and uh, like a role model in some ways as I was a young high school athlete. So I want to just thank you for that. And it's great to see that you're, you know, onto so many cool things after sports. And it was really great to, to catch up with you. I know it's, we've been spotty in our keeping in touch since, since high school, but it's really been great to reconnect. Yeah, same with you, dude. I mean, I I know I've communicated to you already, but I just feel like you are so grounded in where you're at. And it's powerful that you're able to do this as a passion project. But 
to continue to bring mindfulness and awareness to young athletes is something that I am inspired by and um, aspire to do at some point in my life. And so thank you for giving me that gift as well to be on the show with you and learn with you and uh, have this have this time in our lives to experience it with one another. Yeah, man. Well, well, thanks for saying that. And yeah, stay safe during all this COVID stuff and let's let's be in touch. All right, brother. All right. You too, dude. Take, Take care. Take care. Thanks. Peace. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. This is the best way to stay in contact with my work, as I'll be sending out new podcast announcements along with other written content. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, or sending the podcast to someone who you think might like it. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.